Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. Got a Supreme Court case here. It's kind of interesting. And so you have to bear with me. The legal concept underneath this is kind of complicated. But the issue we're discussing is not. And here's the thing. If you get the Supreme Court of the United States to hear your case, it's a pretty big deal. It's, it's mathematically quite difficult. They turn down the vast majority of cases presented to them, and they pick and choose the ones that they claim are the most important, and they handle those. So you brief the argument, you submit a brief, the other side submits their brief, and these briefs go to the court and they explain your position in writing with all the authorities that support your position and so on and so forth. And other parties might file amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs, saying, you know, we're not a party to the case, but we have an interest in this because, and we think you should rule this way because of such and such. And that's quite common. Somewhere down the road, they then call on the parties for oral argument. And you get to stand up in front of the bench of all the justices and make your argument. And uh, it's, it's one of these things that's uh, very unusual in that nowadays, it's one of the last things that is not widely publicly observable. Because they still do not allow cameras in the Supreme Court. And so you can find video footage of what happens in a lot of courtrooms. Not the Supreme Court. But you can see it in movies, <laughs> and you can read the transcripts later. And there are reporters who cover the Supreme Court, so we know what happens. It happens out in the open. It's just not videotaped in that sense and broadcast on you know, YouTube. So the interesting thing is that you can get up and give your presentation and then say, Your Honors, if there's anything else, I, I'm available to answer questions. Otherwise, I'll sit down. And there are famous examples where the panel just sat there like bumps on a log and said, eh, Okay, good. And once in a while, however, the panel will get uh, feisty and start firing questions at the attorneys. And quite often, they'll do it to both sides. So that, there's nothing unusual about that. But once in a while, you can tell by the questions being asked how a particular justice is thinking of a, of a case, what they think of the case. And I've argued cases in the courts of appeal in Michigan, and the same thing happens there where you'll get up there, give you a little presentation, say any questions, and one judge starts firing questions at you, and it's very obvious what they think of your case, whether they like it or not. And so here's a case from lawandcrime.com is the website. Allura Nanos wrote this. Justice Alito, concerned that freeing legally innocent man from prison would clog up the federal courts. So there's an argument before the court about a man who is in prison. And a very good argument can be made that the guy is innocent. And we know it. They know it. Everyone knows it. But he's still in prison on a technicality. And now they're saying that, at least up till now, he can't get released because of this technicality. So he's in front of the Supreme Court, his attorneys are, arguing this case. And Justice Alito apparently is concerned that if we let this guy go, it might clog up the courts <laughs> because we'll have to let other people go who are legally innocent. So here we go. Supreme Court of the U.S. heard oral arguments Tuesday in a complex federal criminal case that highlights the difference between legal innocence and factual innocence. The case is called Jones versus Hendricks, involves a federal petition filed by a federal prisoner, and his name is Jones. He was convicted in 2000 of possessing a firearm as a felon in violation of a federal statute, which is 18 U.S.C. section 922 G1. 
Following his conviction, he appealed and lost several times. But in 2019, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in another case that that section this man was convicted under had been misinterpreted during the trial. They said that the courts have gotten wrong what 18 U.S.C. section 922 G1 means. And therefore, if you take the new reading that the Supreme Court said is correct, this guy shouldn't be in jail. So he asked to get out. They said, no, you were convicted like an actual guilty person. Therefore, you're still in jail. And his argument is, but the Supreme Court has said that the reason I was convicted is wrong. So as a result of that second ruling, the conduct that led to Jones's conviction was no longer enough for him to be legally guilty of the crime. Jones challenged his conviction again on that basis. And uh, they say that, well, there's no new facts here. And uh, the only question then is, he violated the underlying statute, but he violated only under the misunderstood interpretation I know it's weird, but he lost that appeal because federal law puts a limit on the number of times a prisoner can ask for review of a conviction. Because Jones had already filed a habeas petition years before, he lost his case both before the District Court and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. And again, those petitions were filed before the Supreme Court made its ruling. So arguably, they're saying that he should not have filed any appeals until the law got overturned. Then he could file his appeal and got, you know, get out. But how do you know they're going to do that? In a practical sense, Jones's case seems maddeningly illogical. The Eighth Circuit ruled against Jones on the basis that he should have raised his claim in his first petition. But if he had raised the claim at that time, he would have lost because the second ruling hadn't been made yet. Before the justices are three distinct points of view, one of which is that Jones's argument that his conviction should be vacated because he is no longer legally guilty, that's possible. The federal government's position is that Jones should lose for reasons other than those relied upon by the Eighth Circuit. And of course, the Eighth Circuit's position, as argued by a court-appointed attorney and a former clerk to both of these justices, says that um, the guy should have brought his motion earlier and and didn't, so therefore he loses. Now, here's the question. The justices primarily confined their inquiries during argument to matters of statutory interpretation. So you look at the statute 18 U.S.C., section 922, G1. You look at the statute on habeas corpus petitions. You look at that, and and you ask yourself about how these different things are written, how they interplay. And at some times, some of the justices mention the question, of whether Jones's legal innocence under the revised statutory interpretation raises questions of underlying fairness and justice. So some people dared to say, let's not talk about all these rules for a split second. Just for a second, let's put it aside and ask ourselves, what's fair here? What would justice be? This guy is not guilty. The law he was convicted under, as interpreted today, he did not break. He shouldn't be in prison. Could, could, could we at least consider that for a moment along with everything else? So most of the discussion was relegated to whether federal rules actually foreclose the relief Jones is looking for. 
the rules in question surround whether a prisoner may file successive habeas petitions. So in other words, you file a habeas corpus petition and it doesn't get granted. Now you're, now you're angry, so you file another one. Well, that, that didn't work either. You file another one. And by the way, there are people who are vexatious filers who just simply sit there and file cases because they're in prison and they don't have much else to do. And so I understand that you can draw a line and say, okay, you can only file so many petitions. But you think there'd be a catch-all that says, unless justice otherwise requires, or something like that. Because there are a lot of catch-alls and statutes in case they missed something or didn't anticipate something such as what could happen in the future. Okay? Questions from the bench headed in another direction, however, when Justice Alito questioned Deputy Solicitor General Eric Fagan, who argued on behalf of the Department of Justice. Alito focused his discussion on a practical concern, but not the matter of whether fairness would demand that a legally innocent man be given the chance to challenge his imprisonment. Rather, Alito asked about what the ruling might mean for the workload of the federal courts. And here's the question. Do you have any concern about the complexity of the rule that you're advocating? Are you concerned that every federal prisoner who wants to bring a successive motion is going to claim that this falls within the traditional scope of habeas and that this would be an escape clause that would be invoked again and again and again and all the district judges are going to have to analyze the traditional scope of habeas to see whether the claim actually falls within that. So the question is, if we let this guy out simply because he's innocent, it might open the floodgates for other people who want to get out and they might start filing these motions over and over again. Now, Fagan responded that he was not concerned with overburdening the federal courts because, in his view, it is rare that a case would fall within the narrow parameters suggested by his position in this particular case. Fagan told the justice that Jones's case constitutes probably a category of one in which somebody is in prison for something that Congress never made a crime. And so, by the way, some people, by now, have already typed a comment below this video And have said, Steve, it was a crime when he broke the law. The fact that a court later says it's not a crime, you know, we're playing with words here. No, no. The attorney arguing on behalf of the government said somebody is in prison for something that Congress never made a crime. The man is serving time in prison for breaking a law. And everyone now says what he did did not break the law. That's the issue here. So even the attorney for the government stepped back and said, no, it's, it's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the fact that this guy's in prison. And he's saying that the guy should actually be in prison for other reasons or kept there or whatever. But the judiciary is generally loath to deal with the usual tidal wave of cases from convicted prisoners who seek to be freed. Most applications are tossed but not without time and attention from clerks and judges. Alito's comments touched on the procedures and the personnel necessary to deal with such matters uh, should the floodgates be open. Courts, after all, have to realistically employ the requisite resources necessary to manage such situations. And indeed, Alito joined Kagan in 2019 before the House Appropriations Committee to discuss the court's budget, perhaps why these administrative questions are on his mind. However, Fagan, the attorney for the government, suggested that an avalanche of paperwork from prisoners who want them to be freed is unlikely to result from a decision here in Jones's favor. 
And don't get me wrong, I think that there probably would be some people who'd say, oh, this other guy gets to file multiple habeas petitions, so do I. And, you know, if you're sitting around in prison with nothing better to do but draft, you know, things to file with the courts, you're probably following this stuff too, assuming you have access to the internet. And so I get that. But the question always is, do we err on the side of letting innocent people go free or do we err on the side of lock them all up and let God decide? And I personally think that the fact that there's an innocent guy in jail, guy's innocent, the attorney for the government even says so, the guy should be out. And you say, but the rules don't allow it. Okay, well, this isn't a game where the rules are more important than the participants. Okay, so we have rules in place. And once in a while, something happens where you go, that's strange. Nobody would have ever anticipated that. So the rules don't fit these facts. What do we do now? And if the Supreme Court says this guy stays in jail, we're going to have an odd situation with a guy in jail who admittedly, everyone says, would not be found guilty of doing what he did because doing what he did wasn't against the law. (laughs) And it seems such a strange thing to have to say out loud. But it's true. And I'm not saying, by the way, that, you know, this guy's necessarily a good person. I don't know anything about the guy. I don't I don't know anything about the guy other than the little factoids that I know in the story here. But I do have a problem with a case where everyone looks at it and goes, yeah, he's innocent. But the rules don't allow us to let him out. Because and I get back to the earlier thing about just justice. And I'm not trying to preach here. But overarching all of this ought to be the concept that we're going to do what's right And doing what's right is not following the rules blindly. And we've all seen situations where something is programmed to do something blindly. And it goes off track and it keeps, you know, like bumping into the wall or something. Um, But we're not robots. We're not programmed like that. You know, it it ought to be something that we can look at and go, okay, clearly there's a problem here. Clearly there's a problem here. There's got to be some way to resolve this problem other than saying, nope, we're going to blindly follow the rules and let an innocent man sit in jail. So crazy story. Chad sent it to Thanks a lot from lawandcrime.com. Elora Nanos wrote that. Justice Alito concerned that freeing legally innocent man from prison would clog up the federal courts. Questions or comments? Put them below. Let's talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Lato's Law. The will to succeed is important, but what's important is the will to prepare.